Hello, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. I don't know where you are, listener, but it's hot where I am. Today's the sixth straight day over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 32 degrees Celsius. With very high humidity, and there's no end in sight. It's supposed to stay like this for at least throughout the middle of next week. The grass here is really starting to turn brown on the old lawn. For any of you listeners also going through a similar heat wave, please stay safe. But you all didn't download this podcast to hear me talk about the weather. On today's episode, it's The Unseen Queen by Troy Denning, the second book in the Dark Nest Trilogy. The Jedi continue to try and stop war from breaking out between the Killicks and the Chiss. But is that possible without giving up on the ideals they've established following the Yuzhan Vong War? We'll discuss that coming up. But first, it's listener question time. Today's first email comes from Captain Fox. The captain says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I was never a fan of Legends, thinking it was a sideshow and not real Star Wars. You've changed my mind. Every other Friday feels like Christmas. I have two questions. One, what Legends storyline or series, regardless of how much you personally enjoy it, would make an exciting, interesting, or successful live-action or animated series? Two, if you could personally pick a Legends storyline or book series to see made into live-action or animation, which would you pick? Thank you very much for the email, Captain, and thank you very much for the kind words. The most heartwarming part of doing this podcast is hearing from people that have started exploring legend stories because they're enjoying this show. So thank you for saying that. Now to your question. I'm going to exclude the original Thrawn trilogy because it seems like we are getting parts of that story right now, specifically in the Bad Batch animated show and in the shows of the Mandoverse. So that's too easy to pick. If I had to choose another legend story that would make a cool Star Wars show, it would be the X-Wing stories. Imagine a group of pilots, their commandos, their support staff, fighting lengthy campaigns against the Imperial Navy, either on their own or in support of ground troops. You could go gritty live action, like a combination of Rogue One, Battlestar Galactica, the sci-fi television show, or Band of Brothers, the HBO miniseries. We'd follow four or five main characters, all centered around Wedge Antilles. But we're talking about fighter pilots during wartime here. Think of the gut punch every time the squadrons go out, but only half of them return. But the X-Wing stories would be pretty cool in animation, too. Think of the visuals if it was an anime. Of course, an animated X-Wing series would be a little more lighthearted, but still, there are plenty of gut punches in Star Wars animation. So the X-Wing stories would make the best show, in my opinion, but if I got to pick a legend story I'd like to see, it's Jedi vs. Sith, a series based in the far past. Think Game of Thrones in Star Wars, and it would span thousands of years. Think of the characters. Nagasato, Freedon Nad, Revan, Bastila Shan, Nomi Sunrider, Ulic Keldromo, Exar Kun, The Army of Light, the Brotherhood of Darkness, Valentine Farfalla, ending, of course, with Darth Bane and Darth Zana. 
If you give me 3,000 years of wars between the Jedi and the Sith, with each season being a different era, with different characters and conflicts, man, I'd love that. And it's not even my favorite part of the Star Wars timeline, but come on, that would be fascinating. Thank you very much for the email, Captain Fox. Today's second message comes from Jamie. Jamie says, I've been a Star Wars fan since seeing the first movie in 1977. Yes, I am that old. I have read most of the books so far that you've covered and can say it was fun to listen to your point of view. I can say I agree with you for the most part, other than I'm a Han Solo fan. I enjoy the characters that are not Force-sensitive because it makes them rely on their own abilities. Who's your favorite non-Force character? I will continue to listen to your shows and tell my other Star Wars fans about the podcast. Thank you very much for the email, Jamie. I've got two answers for this question. One from Star Wars canon and one from Legends. My favorite non-Force-using characters in canon are the clones from the Clone Wars animated show, specifically Rex, Fives, and Echo. I'm a sucker for stories about soldiers on the front lines, and when people talk about all the victims of the Clone Wars, of course they talk about the Jedi wiped out during Order 66, or the Separatists who were duped by Darth Sidious and Count Dooku, or the regular folks on all the war-torn worlds throughout the galaxy. And they're absolutely right. But, in my opinion, one group that sometimes gets overlooked are the clones themselves. I mean, they were created in a lab and trained for war. It's not like they got a choice. They were just told that they're cannon fodder. The smartest thing the Clone Wars animated show did, in my opinion, was to allow the audience to get to know some of the clones, how they felt about the roles in the war, their relationships with each other, and the heartbreak when one falls in battle. Rex's story in the Umbara arc in Season 4 is unbelievable. Fives' story at the beginning of Season 6 shows just how close the clones came to discovering how they were being used. And of course, Echo, trying to figure out his place in the galaxy moving forward. These are brilliant stories. My favorite non-Force user in Legends is Gavin Darklighter, the much younger cousin of Biggs Darklighter and the youngest member of Rogue Squadron when Wedge reformed the unit after the fall of the Empire. We watch him grow up over the Legends timeline. He starts out as a young, naive pilot, we see his first adult romantic relationship. He gains wisdom and experience as he climbs the ranks in the Republic military and later the Galactic Alliance military. Sometimes there's a bit of a sadness to Gavin, but in Legends, he's the character that most closely reminds me of Luke Skywalker in the original trilogy. Wide-eyed, optimistic, looking for adventure, and completely dedicated to his friends. Gavin just does it with a mustache and a goatee. Thank you very much for the email, Jamie. Now, listener, if you want to be really cool like Jamie or Captain Fox and have a question for the show, just email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or you can send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Or if you'd like to get your voice on the show, just record yourself and email it in. Please, Record your file in MP3 or MP4 
audio format. Coming up at the end of the show, I've got more listener favorite Starfighter Squadrons. It's been really fun reading all the ones you guys have been emailing in. So please, listener, stay tuned for that. Now it's time to dive into today's book, The Unseen Queen by Troy Denning, the second book of the Dark Nest Trilogy. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins a year after the end of the Joiner King. Even though the Killicks have been moved from the Corbu system, the Chiss are still guarding that area of space, and for good reason. The Jedi weren't able to completely wipe out the Dark Nest, and now the Gorog are selling Black Mambrosia for Tabana gas and starship fuel. But where are the Gorog operating out of? Our heroes head to the Utageta Nebula, where Han and Leia had gifted the Killicks a dozen planets for settlement. However, there's something weird going on on the planet Wotaba. A strange epidemic called Fizz is tormenting the Killick nests there. The Fizz attacks at random, melting some of the Killicks and their equipment. Nobody can figure out what causes the Fizz and why it attacks indiscriminately. Reynard Thal accuses our heroes and the Galactic Alliance of giving the Killicks the planets in the Utageto Nebula because he says they knew about the Fizz all along. It's revenge for the events at Korobu. Luke and Han decide to stay on Woteba to help research the Fizz and to search for the source of the Black Mambrosia. When the others leave to return to Alliance space, Alima Rar emerges and confronts Luke and Han. She offers Luke a deal. Leave the Dark Nest alone and the Gorog will not interfere in his investigation into the Fizz. Alima sweetens the deal by offering to unblock R2-D2's recordings of Luke and Leia's parents. She even gives Luke a freebie, unlocking a code to a hollow recording showing Anakin telling Padme that he will soon be powerful enough to stop her from dying during childbirth. As much as he's tempted, Luke rejects the deal, vowing to bring down Alima Rar Nomi Plo, and the Dark Nest. Meanwhile, Jason Solo and Ben Skywalker arrive on Hapes for a secret meeting with Tanel Ka. The Queen Mother introduces Jason to her weak old daughter, his daughter. Shocked, Jason asks, how is this possible? He and Tanel Ka haven't even seen each other in over a year. She tells Jason, she used the Force to slow down her pregnancy in the early stages, and if Hapens ever learned who the father was, that he was a Jedi, it would be a death sentence for the baby. Suddenly, the meeting is interrupted. The Gorog attack the palace, intent on killing the infant. Jason and Tanel Ka fight off the assassins and learn Ta'a Chum somehow hired the Dark Nest to assassinate the baby girl. After the attack, Jason sneaks into Ta'a Chum's palace apartments, demanding to know why she wanted the baby dead. The Dowager Queen Mother says the Gorog approached the Hapens for interstellar navigation technology, so she made a deal. Kill her great-granddaughter, and she would give them the technology. Disgusted, Jason uses the Force to invade Ta'a Chum's mind, plunging her into a coma. As he turns to leave, 
Jason receives a force vision. War is coming. An eternal war with the Killicks. Billions will die. And his daughter will be one of them. At the Jedi Temple on Ossus, Master Silgal is testing a sample of the fizz that Leia and Master Sibitine brought back from Wotaba. Silgal discovers the fizz is a biological defense system. It seems to only attack things that threaten the ecosystem of the planet. It doesn't attack the Killicks that are just going about their daily routines. But if they start trying to exploit the planet's resources, the fizz attacks. Leia and Saba head off to Wotaba in the Millennium Falcon with Mara Jade in her X-Wing. When they arrive to the entrance of the nebula, they find it blockaded. Leia attempts to convince Admiral Nek Buatu and Commodore Gavin Darklighter to allow them to pass, to deliver the information about the Fizz to the Killicks and to get Luke and Han. Buatu refuses and takes Leia and Saba into custody when they try to run the blockade. Right after Leia and Mara leave, Chief Cal Amas arrives at the Jedi Temple and says the Order needs a temporary leader while Luke remains in the Utagetu Nebula. Reluctantly, the Jedi agree. Omas manipulates the vote so that Corrin Horn is elected the Order's acting leader, knowing that Corrin will direct the Jedi's actions to follow the goals of the Galactic Alliance, to side with the Chiss, and to deal with the Killicks with military force if necessary. Of course, Corrin's election angers Master Kip Duran and a lot of the younger Jedi. They argue that the Jedi aren't subjects of the Galactic Alliance leadership. They only answer to the will of the Force. Kip vows to head to the nebula and rescue our heroes. As the argument escalates, Jason convinces his sister Jaina and his fellow younger Jedi that the Chiss are about to attack the Killicks and need to be stopped. They take six Jedi X-Wings back to the Korobu system and attack a Chiss fuel supply depot. But the attack is just a ploy. Jason wants the Chiss to wipe out the Killicks. In his mind, it's the only way to stop the Eternal War. Jaina and the other Jedi are stunned. They all knew Jason had emerged from the Vong War a changed person, but they had no idea he was capable of something like this. On Wotaba, Luke and Han follow a group of smugglers and see them trading starship fuel to the Gorog. A fight breaks out, and in the blaster fire, a canister of the fuel falls out of the smuggler's landspeeder and spills on the ground. Immediately, the Fizz attacks, destroying the fuel, killing the smugglers and the Gorog. Han realizes the Fizz is the planet's defense system, and the two of them take the information back to Raynar. Unuthal thanks Han and Luke, and to show his gratitude, he gives them replica models of the Millennium Falcon and Luke's X-Wing made from Killick spin glass. But Alima Rar shows up and convinces Unuthal that Han and Luke are lying. He orders our heroes imprisoned, but they escape with the help of Jay June and Tarfang. The two smugglers say they've been delivering spin glass models to the ships in the Alliance blockade outside the nebula. Curious, Han destroys the Falcon model, releasing a swarm of Gorog assassins. Luke and Han destroy the bugs and order June and Tarfang to take them to warn the blockade. Leia and Saba escape the brig on the Admiral Akbar and try to convince Admiral Buatu to call off the blockade. 
He considers Leia's argument when a dozen Killick nest ships emerge from the nebula. Boatu orders his ships into a firing line when suddenly the spin glass models in the Admiral Akbar erupt, spilling thousands of Gorog assassins. Leia and Saba lead Boatu and a handful of crew members through the ship to escape in the Falcon. Boatu calls any survivors to abandon ship and orders Gavin and the other ship commanders to fire on the Admiral Akbar. Luke and Han arrive in June's ship as the battle begins. They discover which of the Killick Nest ships belongs to the Gorog. They land on the outside of the ship, and Luke contacts Mera using the Force. She swoops in, intent on destroying the Nest ship's hyperspace generator. Meanwhile, Luke and Han venture deep inside the Nest ship to stop Lomi Plo, the Dark Jedi leading the Gorog. But she finds them. In the subsequent duel, Lomi uses the Force to remain invisible, manipulating Luke's and Han's fears to affect their eyesight. Luckily, Mara is able to destroy the Gurog's hyperspace generator. With her plans foiled, Lomi Plo flees. The story ends with our heroes and Admiral Boatu arriving on Gavin's capital ship, the Mon Mothma. There, they learn of Jason's raid on the Chiss fuel depot leading the Chiss to declare war on the Killicks. All their hard work trying to keep the peace have all been for naught. The Swarm War has begun. Time for a break. When we come back, I'll talk more about The Unseen Queen by Troy Denning. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But allow me to suggest a book from Star Wars canon. Queen Shadow is the story of Padme Amidala, after she steps down as queen and steps up to represent Naboo in the Galactic Senate. Together with her loyal handmaidens and the help of new allies, Padme tries to navigate the labyrinth that is galactic politics on Coruscant. That's Queen Shadow by E.K. Johnston. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today's book is The Unseen Queen by Troy Denning, the second book in the Dark Nest Trilogy. I said on the previous show that the Dark Nest Trilogy is not one of my favorite story arcs in Legends. So I'm not just going to keep pointing out the things about the Killicks, the Joiners, the really hard sci-fi aspects of the story that aren't as appealing to me, but of course a lot of people might really enjoy. The part of the story I really want to focus on is Jason Solo and his character both in the Darkness trilogy and moving forward. Coming out of the New Jedi Order series, the war with the Yuuzhan Vong, Jason is completely changed. I'm not going to go into specifics because we're going to get to the New Jedi Order in season number three of the podcast, but 
Jason's character up through his mid-teens, maybe even late teens, was rather peaceful, very introspective. He was not as emotional as his sister, Jaina Solo, who is much more like a combination of Han and Leia, in my opinion. She's got their stubbornness. She's got their heart. She wears her emotions on her sleeve the way Han and Leia do. She's the first to jump in to a scrap if need be. Jason, in my opinion, is more like his uncle, though he doesn't have the sense of adventure that young Luke did. But again, he's more introspective. He's a little quieter. The war with the Yuzhan Vong lasts for five or six years. So anyone that's fighting the front lines of a war like that is going to emerge a different person. The Dark Nest trilogy takes place five years after the end of the Yuzhan Vong War. Jason spends those five years roaming the galaxy, trying to learn more things about the Force. Jason is not convinced that the Jedi way is the correct way. Jason believes that the Force speaks to individuals, and whatever the Force says, that individual is obligated to follow. Jason doesn't really believe in good and evil anymore. When many Star Wars fans talk about Grey Jedi, Jason Solo in the latter part of Legends is what I picture. This is the book where you first see Jason change, in my opinion, to rather a selfish character. And I'm not saying he's selfish for the wrong reasons, but he's selfish nonetheless. Think about it. Jason believes war is justified between the Chiss and Killicks because the only way to keep his family safe is for the Killicks to be wiped out. His force vision showed him that. It's very reminiscent of his grandfather in the prequels. Not that Anakin wants to start a war in order to save Padme, but Anakin Skywalker believes that if he can become powerful enough to stop the Clone Wars, to stop the chaos that is taking place in the galaxy and restore order throughout the galaxy that he could become powerful enough to keep his wife and his children safe. Well, child, Anakin doesn't know that it's twins, but he can keep his family safe if he can restore order to the galaxy. In a sense, this is exactly what Jason is trying to do. But his force vision tells him that the only way to maintain 
order throughout the galaxy is for the Killick race to be extinguished. The only difference is, really, in my opinion, Anakin was doing what he thought was right. I don't believe Jason thinks in terms of right and wrong anymore. Jason believes that actions are simply justified in order to achieve the outcome that he believes the Force is telling him. He believes that the ends justify the means. After he learns that he has a daughter, he invades the mind of his lover's grandmother, Ta'achum, who, granted, she's a despicable person, but he invades her mind, plays with her consciousness, and sends her into a coma. He mind-wipes his Padawan's mind, Ben Skywalker, into forgetting their trip to Hapes so that Ben can't spill the beans that Jason has a daughter. He instigates the Chiss by tricking his fellow Jedi Knights into attacking a Chiss fuel depot. He tells his fellow Knights that the Chiss are actually planning an attack on the Killicks which of course goes contrary to Chiss law that they can never be the aggressor. They can never shoot first. And if you think about it, his five fellow Jedi Knights that accompany him on this raid should probably see through that. But regardless, he convinces them that the Chiss are going against their most sacred law to attack the Killicks. But of course, the Chiss believe the Jedi have sided with the Killicks. Jason knows this. So by bringing in Jedi stealth X-Wings to fire on the Chiss fuel depot in the Corbu system, he's instigating the Chiss into attacking. From the Chiss point of view, the Killicks have started this war using the Jedi, their allies. And these are the types of things that Jason will continue to do going forward. I guess I can understand what the author Troy Denning is doing. People have all seen the George Lucas clip where he says that Star Wars is poetry. It rhymes. Things happen again and again. I'm just not a big fan of... Jason Solo being the mirror image of his grandfather, Anakin Skywalker. It's one of the storylines in the novels of the later Legends timeline that I wish didn't happen. Now, if you're a big fan of Anakin Skywalker's Fall from Grace, this might be a storyline that's right up your alley. I could definitely see the appeal to people who enjoy Anakin's storyline from the prequels. And maybe I would have enjoyed it more if it was presented in a different way. It just seems like it's the exact same thing to me. Anyway, it's almost time to finish the show, but 
as I said at the beginning, we've got more listener Star Wars fighter squadrons. Two more this week. The first is from our friend Captain Fox. Wow. The captain gets two emails on today's episode of the podcast. Anyway, here is Fox Squadron. One flight, Fox leader, Wedge Antilles. Captain Fox says he's not the best pilot on the list, though he's not far off, but he's the best pure fighter squadron leader in canon and legends. Fox 2 is Garrick the Face Loran of Race Squadron. Fox 3, Ray Palpatine Skywalker. I like the fact that you used her full name, Captain Fox. Fox 4, Din Djarin, Mando himself. Now please, Captain, tell me he's flying an N1 Starfighter. Two flight, Fox 5 is Luke Skywalker. Fox 6, Poe Dameron. Fox 7, Han Solo. The captain says he flies the Falcon like a magician. Imagine what he could do in an X-Wing. Fox 8, Dash Rendar. Nice one, Captain Fox, but making Dash and Han wingmen? The egos that will be involved there. That's juicy. Three flight. Fox 9, Anakin Skywalker. Fox 10, Erica Quell from the Alphabet Squadron books. Fox 11, Django Fett, and Fox 12, Tycho Selchu. Great list, Captain Fox. I really like your picks. Next up today, it's friend of the show, Matt Thacker. He who asked the original question, who would make up your all-time Star Wars fighter squadron? So here we go with Thack Squadron. Squadron leader, one flight leader, Thack 1, Wedge Antilles. Matt says he's the best non-force-sensitive starfighter pilot in the galaxy, had a hand in destroying two Death Stars. He's respected commander and tactician. Thack 2, executive officer, Gavin Darklighter. From humble Tatooine roots to joining the rogues at 16 to eventually becoming their leader. His longevity alone is something to be admired. Thack 3, Poe Dameron, a dazzling pilot who thinks outside the box and who is coming into his own as a leader. Thack 4, Jedi Master Plo Koon, not only a Jedi Master who served on the Council, but a gifted pilot. Some say he was second only to Anakin Skywalker in the cockpit. We'll just disregard his last flight there, Matt. Two flight consists of Thack 5, Luke Skywalker. From nailing Womp Rats to nailing Death Stars, Luke does it all. Had to give him Thack 5, of course, as the call sign, and stick him in a flight with his family. Because Thack 6 is Anakin Skywalker. His unique combination of quick thinking, skill, and ferocity, all aided by the Force, makes him perhaps the best starfighter pilot in Star Wars? Thack 7, Anakin's granddaughter, Jaina Solo. When Anakin is your grandpa and Han Solo is your dad, there's a bit of a reputation to uphold, and Jaina kills it. She'll enjoy flying with her grandpa and her uncle. Thack 8, Thane Kyrell from Lost Stars. 
Thane's an Imperial defector. He's an Alliance veteran who served at Hoth, Endor, and Jakku. Three Flight, Thak-9, Hera Syndulla, Three Flight leader. One of the great leaders of the early rebellion, Hera is a gifted pilot who Wedge will rely heavily on for her leadership skills. Thak-10, Baron Suntir Fell. Matt's going with the Legends version here. Suntir Fell served both the Rebellion and the Empire. He's determined, steady, and composed. Fell is perhaps one of the few who can challenge Wedge for the title of best non-Force-sensitive pilot in the galaxy. Thak-11, Wes Jansen, an Alliance veteran of multiple engagements, Jansen's cockpit skills are balanced by a jovial attitude and a gift for uniting whatever squadron he's serving in. He's a trusted confidant of Wedge. And rounding out Thak Squadron is Thak-12, Broar Jace from the X-Wing books, an ace pilot whose cocky attitude has somewhat tempered over time. Jace has a knack for bringing out the best in his fellow pilots, if only because they want to beat him. Ooh, Broar Jace. Corrin Horn is not going to be happy with you, Matt. Great selections again. Now, everybody, keep sending in your Star Wars fighter squadrons. Or, we can broaden this out. If you don't want to do Starfighter squadrons, who's your all-time Star Wars ground platoon? Captain Rex has got to be the leader of that, correct? Anyway, send them in. I love reading these. Now it's time to wrap up today's show. If you have a question or comment, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Or if you want to get your voice on the show, record your own audio file and email it to swlegendslounge at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Just please record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Coming up with the next episode, it's the final book in the Darkness Trilogy, The Swarm War by Troy Denning. Look for that episode coming out on August 5th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>